Hey Wolf, I followed your advice. I called the WTO's budget department to buy tickets for the Switzerland versus Portugal game tonight. I told them it was important research at the Geneva football stadium, the Stade de Genève. Really? And what was their reply? Well, they were laughing so hard it was difficult to understand what they were saying. They did make a suggestion though. They told me that if we hiked to the top of Mont Salève, Geneva's local mountain, then we could try and watch the game from up there. What do you think about this idea, Jana? Ready to go? Come on, guys. The Stade de Genève must be at least three kilometers away from here. We won't see anything. Well, I could bring a telescope and a tripod. So, so you're determined to carry the tripod and a telescope 900 meters up the mountain. Can we at least see the whole pitch from up there? Some of it. Okay, uh, I have a sports app on my phone. We could watch the game here. To boost your enthusiasm, I bought some football merch. Special souvenirs to mark the occasion. Here, there's one for you, Wolf. There's even a pair of CR7 underpants in there. Really? Oh, no. Michael, did you know Cristiano Ronaldo has registered the trademark CR7 across the world for a whole range of products, from jewellery and textiles all the way to restaurant services? So why on earth did you pick underpants? Well, I did buy something else, a Servet FC sports kit for Jana. The Stade de Genève is the home stadium of Servet Football Club. Since it's being used by the Swiss national team this evening, I thought you might like to show your local allegiance. Oh, I think that's a good idea. I like that. Hmm. The FC Servet logo is mainly protected in Switzerland, but Adidas has global reach, of course. Can you guys stop chatting and tell us what this episode is actually about? Welcome to this new episode of the WTO Let's Talk Trade podcast, in which we discuss trade issues in the global soccer value chain. In this installment, we explore how fans create value for the beautiful game and look at the role intellectual property protection plays in this context. So, let's talk trade. Hello, my name is Michael Roberts and I work in the development division of the WTO. I'm joined by Wolf Meyer Evert and Jana Borges. Wolf is the Secretary of the Council that looks after the implementation of the WTO Agreement on Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, or TRIPS. Jana Borges is Head of Audiovisual and Social Media at the WTO. With her background in journalism, you can be sure that no important question will go unasked. Wolf and Jana are your pitch-side pundits and will provide expert commentary and analysis for this episode. In this episode, we examine a much more immaterial but still quantifiable issue. How football fans' love of the game generates revenue. Fans engage in the beautiful game in many ways. Committed fans may interact with their team on a daily basis, never missing a match, following social media feeds and by purchasing collectibles and memorabilia. Casual fans have more periodic engagement that tends to peak around specific sporting events like national, regional or global tournaments. So Wolf, how does this fan interaction and love of the game create revenue? And what does it have to do with trade? A large part of what makes up the fascination of football is intangible. The thrill of watching a match, the aura and reputation of successful teams and players, and the atmosphere of major competitions, to name just a few. These intangible assets are objects of immense desire for viewers and for fans and sponsors who want to be associated with its reputation. And they are thus of enormous value. The creation, the ownership, and the use of such intangible assets is largely governed by intellectual property rights, or IP. 
The owners of IP rights can derive revenue from authorizing others to use their IP through licensing. And, as usual, the bigger your reputation, the more fans you have, and the more revenue can be created. Football's major sources of income are merchandising, sponsoring, and broadcasting rights, all of which rely on the underlying IP rights system. Figures for the Big Five leagues, compiled by Deloitte, show that collectively the English, French, German, Italian, and Spanish leagues generated revenues of 15.6 billion euros in the 2020-21 season. On average, broadcasting rights accounted for 63% across the five leagues, with sponsorship and other commercial activities accounting for the rest. Remember that this season was badly affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Matchday revenue accounts for about 13-14% in the English Premier League in other years. Wolf, there's something that I always wanted to know, and who owns the intellectual property here? Uh, who owns the IP for football? Is it the league? Is it the club? Is it the players? Uh, does Cristiano Ronaldo own the IP rights to, to his matches, for example? First of all, there are different types of IP rights, depending on the intellectual asset we're talking about. These can range from an engineer who owns a patent on a new technology of fixing cleats to football shoes, a football club who has registered its logo as a trademark, a player who owns image rights to her appearance, a broadcaster that may own rights in the audiovisual recordings of a match, all the way to, let's say, a seed grower who may own a plant breeder's right to a certain variety of pitch grass. You see, the interaction of IP rights with football is such a vast topic. Let's focus on the examples of our recent Montsalev hiking project. In the first half, we're going to take a closer look at how the Surfet shirt and CR7 underwear generate revenue. In the second half, we're going to examine the revenues that come from watching matches and explain the related intellectual property rights. I know for sure that Michael went to Servet FC to learn more about the football jersey he offered you. I'm here with Loic Lusher. He's the spokesperson for WTO's local club in Geneva, Servet FC. Can I ask you about merchandising? Um, imagine that we have a Servet shirt in front of us. Can you describe it for our listeners? The first thing to say is that the shirts have changed since the club was founded. We have a poster with all the different shirts going right back to the 1890. The only things you cannot change is the color. So in French, we say les grenats. It's burgundy, I think, uh, in English. We cannot negotiate with that. That's the, the only thing who stays. And for the others, it's fashion. It's changed all, all the years. This year's shirt is made by Adidas and it carries their trademark on it. Can you tell me more about your relationship with, with them and maybe a little bit also about this particular shirt? It's a four-year deal with Adidas, but again, we are a minor league, so that's not Adidas who came to Servette and said, ah, we want to produce your shirt, okay? We have a catalog, catalog Adidas, catalog Puma, catalog Nike, and we just look at the prices and say, okay, we are going to choose this shirt from this mark. So you pay for your shirt? For sure. Okay. Like all the clubs in Switzerland, I think. Maybe Basel or Young Boys, they have special deal, but all the other teams, we just pay for our shirts. To go deeper into the, the trade law perspective, I suggest you to speak to an intellectual property lawyer. What an excellent suggestion. One always needs to speak to an intellectual property lawyer. 
I knew you would like that suggestion. So I did just that. I spoke with Alex Kellen. She is based in London and works for a law firm called Lewis Silken. My colleagues here have been talking a lot about uh, sports kits. My colleague Michael had a football shirt from a Salvette Football Club. And then for some reason, he also had a pair of underwear branded CR7 for Cristiano Ronaldo. Can you talk a little bit about the IP rights attached to these items? So taking the uh, Salvette kit, first of all, their, their team shirt, Uh, if you look at it, it has the trademarks of three different organizations, if not four. So it has the Adidas logo. And that isn't just the, so that you have the classic Adidas logo with the, the word Adidas underneath the, the three small um, blocks. That is a trademark of Adidas. You also have the three stripes on the shoulder of the shirt. Again, a trademark of Adidas. You have the kit sponsors logo. And there's actually a sleeve sponsor logo on there as well. So both of those companies uh, will own trademarks for those designs. And then, of course, you have the club logo, which, again, likely to be a, a trademark, at least in Switzerland, I suspect. And that bears the, the name of the club, again, likely to be a trademark. Michael is really keen on hearing about copyrights or other IP elements in Cristiano Ronaldo's underwear. Cristiano Ronaldo, more than a footballer now, is a, a massive global personality. So his CR7 moniker, if you like, has been registered as a trademark. And he uses that on his goods as a badge of origin. There's actually the pair of underpants that I have in front of me actually bear the name Ronaldo with a small man standing in the size of an A instead of replacing the A in, in Ronaldo. That may well have copyright in it. Certainly, Ronaldo himself, or through one of his image rights companies, one of the companies he'll have set up to exploit those rights, will be the entity that has registered those trademarks and um, is probably licensing them to third parties to uh, develop these and, and sell and distribute those products. Can you talk a little bit about other IP rights that you deal with regularly in your work as a sports lawyer? We've talked about trademarks already. So trademarks are an IP right which protects somebody's badge of origin, if you like. It's about brand names, logos, but also can be sounds and smells that are used as a, a badge of origin even. And you register trademarks with IP uh, offices around the world. And a trademark gives the owner of the trademark effectively a monopoly in relation to that particular mark, in relation to the goods and services for which it's registered. And it enables them to stop other people using those marks for identical or similar marks in similar goods and services. Footballers themselves may register their names, their nicknames, a logo that they've developed for themselves. And likewise, clubs register their name, their crest, maybe their mascots. Moving on to copyright. Copyright protects creative works effectively. So we're talking about things like artworks, films, photography, music, and it arises automatically on the creation of those original works. And it's normally the author that will own them. And that author then has the right to prevent other people from copying that work amongst other things, normally for a period of their lifetime plus 70 years, probably the most natural or most important one is broadcast. So 
films, footage of sporting events will generally have copyright subsisting in them. And then the broadcast itself, that actual transmission also is protected by copyright. Alex, why are all these different forms of IP rights important for uh, the different actors involved in football? Simply, it's the way that they monetize their business. If you did not have all of these protections, they would not be able to make the money they do. I mean, frankly, if there was no copyright to protect broadcasts of sports, nobody would pay the billions of dollars that they do for those rights. And it's why piracy is taken so seriously when you see here and see pirate broadcasts. They are doing that for free without permission, and it completely undermines the business model. If I add the trade angle here, what does it happen when uh, any of these elements are traded across borders? If you think about the core assets being ultimately owned by a single person, either the individual athlete, their image rights company, or the sports club or the national team, that entity will be based in one country normally. And they will want to exploit their fame, if you like, in both the country they're resided in and all around the world. They may have some ability to do it directly themselves in their own territory, but around the world, they probably don't have the expertise, the reach to do so. So most of these arrangements with on some sort of licensing model. So the rights holder, the club, if you like, will license their rights whether that be in the logo or the broadcast, to third parties around the world who will go out and exploit those rights within the terms of that license. Now let's come back to the studio for some halftime analysis. Well, in the first half, we've seen that merchandising and sponsoring are important sources of income for football players, clubs and associations. Just like other trade in IP-protected products or services, they critically depend on a well-functioning IP system that ensures the smooth and affordable protection and enforcement of trademarks across different jurisdictions. Trading nations realized the importance of reliable IP protection for cross-border trade in the late 1980s and included an agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights, known as the TRIPS Agreement, in the WTO rulebook. Under the WTO TRIPS agreement, member governments have agreed to provide certain minimum standards of IP protection and enforcement, not only to their own citizens, but also to right owners from other WTO members. But it is still up to the individual rights owners to register their rights and litigate against any infringers. To help right owners obtain protection for their marks in the main jurisdictions of their choice, the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO, operates registration systems through which multiple applications can be filed in different jurisdictions at the same time. Time to move to the second half with a focus on broadcast rights. Let's get the action underway again with the perspective of a tournament organizer. Our colleague Ryson Turner interviewed him for a previous podcast episode and seized the opportunity to ask about the role of IP rights in organizing football competitions. Yeah, my name is uh, Victor Umaña. I am the CEO of the FIFA Under-20 Women's uh, World Cup that was held in Costa Rica during uh, August 2022. IP is really the name of the game. Most FIFA income is related to IP. Let's say that you can see here, this is the brand of the tournament. It is a registered the trademark. Of course, it's protected. Uh, so all the merchandise, you know, that had these, uh, this emblem, 
is protected by FIFA, all the IP around the commercial uh, rights uh, of the brands <laughs> that are um, associated with FIFA are highly protected. There is a lot of protocols of what you can wear during the tournament as staff, what you can do, how the brands are displayed. This is not by chance. I mean, this is a lot of thinking about this. And really, I would say this is the most important uh, issues that are dealt within the tournament, apart from the tournament itself, to, to the football matches, are related with brand protection and, and rights protection for the brands associated with the tournament. So, Victor, I, I keep having this argument with my colleagues as to whether you need goods to provide services or whether you need services to be able to sell goods. But then, in your opinion, none of that matters. It's really all about intellectual property. <laughs> I mean, yes, I would say yes. I mean, at the end, what you are selling is, is entertainment, which is uh, protected. And this entertainment requires services and requires goods. But above all, you have this big uh, trademark that uh, comprises everything. And uh, once you, you turn on the TV, when you start streaming something, you are paying for, for IP at the end. Of course, it's a service that requires goods, but it's all about the, the intellectual property at the end. My colleague, uh, Wolf Meyer, is going to love you for saying that. <laughs> Well, Roy, I hate to say that I told you so. I can't believe that they've made me wait until episode 5 to tell you that it's all about IP. What do you say? That's interesting. <laughs> Thank you for that. But do you recognize the song? Of course, Jana? of course. It was the official song of the 2006 FIFA World Cup. It's Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes. Right song. But it was more. It was the official anthem. Italian fans adopted it as their stadium chant as their team went through to the final. Not that I want to cut short your argument, but a uh, quick question. Why are football crowds allowed to sing or whistle songs in the stadium, but other singers are not allowed to perform it? Well, the short answer is that we clearly need more IP lawyers to police this sort of thing. But no, the long answer is that the football fans singing in the stadium are trying to perform the song. And their singing in a stadium is arguably covered by copyright exceptions or fair use. In fact, you can argue that they are probably promoting the song. Artists that use a song to create a new one, which they claim authorship in, infringe the copyright of the original, and these cases are litigated quite frequently among composers of successful music. But what about the difference between a song and a football match from an IP perspective? The answer to that is originality. Copyright is available for original works, which means that the artist or the author must have made free and creative choices. There is no protection for creations that are largely determined by factual circumstances or technical requirements. So although football players may have their very own style, and there may be copyright for individual gestures or sequences, football matches as such are deemed to be largely determined by the actions of the other players. So the movements and sprints are not free and creative choices. The Seven Nation Army song, in contrast, is freely created. So the composer's choice of the famous bass riff that I just tried to sing 
is not determined by, you know, the mediocre pass of another player or the offside rule. It is entirely free and creative choice and thus protected by copyright. How do broadcasting organizations protect their broadcast of the game? That's a very good question. From a copyright perspective, it's quite complex to assert ownership. Remember, Michael wanted to take a telescope up the Mont Salève to watch the international match. Yeah, yeah, that was a bit strange, wasn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. But it was a good metaphor for a famous case in IP circles. This case concerns a judgment delivered way back in 1937 in the High Court of Australia. It concerned an enterprising man who built a platform on his land from which he could see into the Victoria Park racing course. From this high point, he was then able to see the horses go around the track and deliver a radio commentary. You can imagine that the race course owners weren't happy, so they took the platform owner to court. However, the judge found in his favor and ruled that a spectacle like this cannot be owned in any ordinary sense of the word. And it is this ruling that there is no property in the spectacle as such bedevils the lives of IP lawyers some 90 years on. So uh, the broadcaster has the right of the image they capture. Is that the difference? It is true that th th there is no IP right of the game itself. So it is the feed and the, the actual broadcast image and the collection of images that can be broadcast by, by a related right. And uh, it's one of the big uh, regrets of the football associations. So the only way they can control it is by access to the stadium. Everybody who has access to the stadium contracts by the ticket or, you know, if they are a service provider, that the feed they produce is the, is the ownership of the stadium or of what, whoever is the licensed, uh, you know, FIFA in that case. Um, but if you can see the pitch, I man, that's why, you know, we're climbing up the Salev. If you can see it from there, um, you don't have to pay license fees for that because the game itself, the before the match itself is not protected. But if I go to the match, I pay my ticket, I enter, I pick up my phone and I start live streaming on a social media yes. platform, then you are, I'm infringing? No, then you are violating the terms of your ticket because on your ticket it says you are not allowed to stream or record. Well, let's go back to Alex Callum of Lewis Silken to learn a bit more about IP in broadcasting. There's no copyright in the sports performance itself. So it's only in the broadcast footage and the transmission that there is copyright protection. But the way that sports organizers generally do it is they create the infrastructure and the legal framework to make it very hard for anybody else to film the particular event. How would they prevent others from filming uh, an event? Because then you're explaining to me that the match itself is not protected. It's just the image that's made of this match that's going to protect it. How will they prevent me from filming their event? In an enclosed space, it's relatively easy. It's about controlling who goes in, what equipment people take in. But obviously, you can now take really quite a, a good film uh, within a stadium of some football with your phone. So how do you stop that being used instead of the official broadcast? Well, that's done through the ticket terms and conditions, the rights of access. So it will say in the ticket terms and conditions that you may not take any films or photographs and use them for commercial gain. And some of them will even go further and say you can't even just put them out on 
social media or broadcast them more generally. Although most rights holders will be quite happy with fans putting a little clip on their social media channels. It's where it really undermines the full broadcast rights that have been granted to those specific broadcasters who will be able to take in all of the sophisticated equipment. But then, of course, you get the pirates as well, who will take the actual official stream and they will distribute that without authority on different platforms. And again, piracy is a real problem for sports broadcasters because it enables people to get content for free. So it is therefore quite attractive, but completely undermines the business model of these sports organizations. Is there a difference between how the rights are handled in the case of a national competition or a regional competition or a global sporting event? It's done differently for every sport, for every region, for different platform types. You can really slice and dice your broadcast rights in whichever way suits you best. The way it works around the world very much depends on the fan base that you have in those territories. So in one country, you know that you've got a very strong audience, so you can do pay-per-view even, or you go for a, a subscription model and the subscriptions can be really quite high. Whereas in other territories, that same property may have very little audience. If you aren't able to sell the live broadcast rights into some territories where maybe your sport isn't so popular, you might decide just to put it up on YouTube for free, maybe try and get some ad revenue off the back of it. That will be geo-blocked, so it will be ring-fenced, so only YouTube in those particular countries where you've not been able to sell the broadcast rights, uh, you'll be able to access it. So that, that happens quite a lot. The broader an audience you can get, the more money you're likely to make. But there's sometimes a balance to there because actually free to air or going for some live streaming may give you a broader audience than it would do if you were selling on a subscription paid for channel. So um, all of the clever commercial minds out there are working out what's the, the best economic model for their particular sport. Is this something that's been used, for example, for women football that is gaining more visibility these times? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's chicken and egg with any sport that is underrepresented at the moment. You want to get and grow your audience. So ideally putting content out free to air, getting um, the news media engaged as well, getting social media engaged. It all drives your audience and grows the appetite for the sport, which in turn leads to commercial revenue, both from uh, sponsors and from broadcasters, enables you to um, up your broadcast fees effectively. And we are seeing this finally now in women's sport and particularly women's football that's doing particularly well in the UK at the moment. And uh, for me, that's really great. And, but I, I do think it's that chicken and egg thing. And if the media had got on board a few years back, then we would be a lot further ahead than we are. As you've heard from Alex, it's critical that baseline protections of this kind are included in the TRIPS agreement. The broadcasting rights that FIFA and regional confederations hold also feed back into football at tournaments like the one that Victor organized in Costa Rica or at other regional and national levels. The sale of these tournament rights and the sale of the games of the big five leagues is worth billions globally. But that's not to say that every league or club earns most of its revenue from the sale of broadcasting rights. Let's hear again from Loïc Lucher at Servette. Can I ask you, how important are broadcasting rights to the Swiss League and to Servette as a source of revenue? To give you uh, an image, I think uh, broadcasting revenues in Premier League is like 60% of the budget of the of the clubs. Here in Switzerland, it's like 5%. So it's nothing because 
nobody outside the Switzerland have a big interest in the Swiss League. That's not uh, like the top five where uh, it's watched all around the world. There is just one Swiss national TV who pays uh, to broadcast the league. So it's a very minor revenue for clubs in Switzerland. So it's really that revenue from broadcasting rights that distinguishes the big five. So that's uh, England, France, Germany, Italy and Spain from the rest. Yes, yes, yes. The, that's it. In our minor leagues, we have to concentrate on selling players. That's our biggest source of uh, revenues. We are uh, um, an exporter league. An exporter league. As we've heard in this episode, intellectual property or IP lies at the heart of the way that football fans' love of the game generates revenue. In the first half, we looked at IP from the perspective of merchandise and commercial activities, where right holders seek to monetize their IP through the sale of branded goods. Remember the CR7 underpants and the jersey of the Servette Football Club? And in the second half, we looked at the broadcasting of matches and how the protection of the feed and the broadcasts play a central role in monetizing the reputation through viewing and advertising rights. Luckily, we also avoided having to hike up a mountain and watch a match through a telescope on a tripod. In the next episode, we're going to match all these different elements and see how they come together in the game, but not on the grass pitches that we covered on episode three. We're going to look now at video games. If you enjoyed hearing about how trade issues connect to intellectual property, I suggest you also listen to our pandemic response episode. It's episode two of season four, which explored the results of the WTO's 12th ministerial conference. Our Deputy Director General, Annabel Gonzalez, and the Chair of the TRIPS Council, Lance McBerry, talk about how a decision on COVID vaccine patents came about. Check it out. Thanks. See you next time for more. Let's talk trade.